dun 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 very intense very intense it's a special it's a special welcome to our second listener q a here on two twins in an album and as you can tell a very special episode today although we've done this before i guess so you know maybe it's less special but we kind of decided that every um 10 episodes we'd throw down a a q a just to you know just to kind of mix it up right now we like to you know variety is the spice of life as they say I just can't believe it's been 10 weeks since the last Q&A episode. I really can't. Doesn't it seem like it's gone by a little briskly? Well, time flies when you're yeah, sort of sort of having fun. Doing and, a podcast, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Time flies when you're going through a weird couple years, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's been weird. I haven't noticed. Something's been going on. Yeah, yeah. So why don't we get right into it? I mean, uh, we, we can kind of do this the way we did last time. Um, and thank you again. We had a lot of people submit, uh, questions, you know, via text, via Twitter, via all kinds of methods. And, uh, and we really appreciate it. So uh, we were able to pick up on a few that we didn't get to last time and take care of some new ones. We're going to field field your questions today. So now, what do you think you, uh, you ready to roll? We can just kind of jump right into it here. Totally ready to roll. And I do just want to say, and I know you feel the same way, but we are so grateful that people tune in to two twins in an album. It really is the audience. that's kind of kept us going. I mean, we, we love this too, just for our own self indulgences, but you know, just the fact that people have listened and followed and given feedback and been engaged with us has been Really, really cool. And so we we do want to thank everybody for taking the opportunity to uh, check us out because, you know, the podcast space is a little crowded. Uh, there's a few other people doing this. And so, you know, there's a lot of choices out there and a lot of different shows and things that people can tune into. And so we're super grateful that people choose us. That's very cool. Well, if you don't mind, I'm just going to sing a quick song to the audience. Nothing's going to change our love for you. You want to tune into two twins and an album. We sure appreciate you. Nothing's ever going to change our love for you. Nothing's going to change. Yeah, that's good. Why are you ruining? Why are you ruining my song? It was just like stepping in as a second vocal, yeah, just coming coming in yeah, over yeah. the top, just yeah, killing exactly. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, improv, by the way. I just want everybody. And I didn't. I didn't really pen those lyrics. Uh, you'd think I did, based on how amazing they were, but but that, believe it or not, that came from the top of my head. So, well, I know being a special edition that we're not doing what's in your head, but now I can tell you that's what's in my head. That's what's well, going to be in my head for a while, T. As I've often said, we're special, all right. All right, you ready for this? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's get right into it here. Let's get, we got a good first one here. Let's get right into it. Here we go. Picture it, Nub. This is the question. Picture it. You're about to walk out from backstage. You can hear the crowd. Some are cheering for you. Some are not. You hear the announcer. Take a deep breath and start walking out, holding up your WWE championship belt, ready to defend. What is your walkout song? (laughs) 
<laughs> that whoever sent that in, I want to say great job on the description because I've heard this conversation many a times when it comes to batter's box music for baseball. Ah, uh, yes, yes. But this is kind of a whole different ordeal. So you're you're a WWE star, and you're about to take on the championship belt. And what's the song? Yeah, what's your walkout song? Basically, I would say it's exactly what you just sang about a minute ago. <laughs> yeah, is that nothing's going to change my love for you by Sergio Mendez? Absolutely. Yeah, I would say uh, Sergio <laughs> Mendez is what comes to mind. Absolutely. Yeah, he was a great boy. He he had a lot of hits other than just that one, didn't he? He's he sure did. Out. You you want you definitely want to make sure you celebrate his entire catalog for sure. Ah, oh, no question. Yeah. So so I've had the batter's box conversation with many a people, and it's it's interesting to hear everybody's different tastes and what is appropriate when you're in this sort of setting. So. For me, when you're talking about a WWE situation with the belt and everything, it's got to be something heavy, something driving, and something that you kind of, you know, that would bring energy to the crowd. So the, the one that I always come up with in this particular situation is usually the band Tool, and it'd be a variety of different riffs that would come from Tool. But for me, it, it would probably be the uh, opening notes of. Uh, one of the songs off an earlier Tool album called Undertow. And uh, I think what I'd go with is probably uh, the main riff to uh, Prison Sex, which is the second song off Tool's Undertow. Just kind of that heavy driving beat and something you could kind of walk around to. Not too fast, not too slow, and and something that has uh, quite a bit of energy to it. So that's usually what comes to mind for me. T, what would be your WWE soundtrack? I'm telling you, you're 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 doing this one all wrong. You're doing this one oh, really? all wrong. Really? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay. I'm going with everybody, everybody by Black Box. Ow! <laughs> Ow! <laughs> Ow! Yeah! Ow! I mean, Ow. that's. Yeah, tool. Give me a break. Yeah, I guess black you're right. black box is the way to go on that one. Black box had a ton of other hits, like the remix to that song, the well, twelve no, they inch had, version to that. No, song. they had they had strike it up. I mean, they had I think multiple songs on the uh, Jock Jams collections. You know, I oh, mean, black box had more than oh, one hit. <laughs> please strike it. You don't remember strike it up? Oh, I did strike it up. Yeah, no, I do remember that now. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. pretty much the exact same song. You know, it's just, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the same song. Wait, really. this is Strike It Up? They just don't have the ow, you know? But this has the chick singing it, right? The Strike Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, when does that come in? Ow. Oh, wait. Oh, it goes, yeah. That one does. Strike it up, bend at his jamba dean bumping. Is that the same Strike chick that sings uh CNC Music Factory uh gonna make you sweat? Well, remember, remember that was the whole thing where they had that like super hot chick in the video. Yeah. And then of course the one who sang it in the studio was like not super hot. Yeah. yeah. And I think they got sued or something. Like it was a Millie Vanilli kind of a Millie Vanilli. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you've seen the uh, clips of the actual Millie Vanilli. It's oh yeah, it's the real the real Millie. Yeah. Well, the real Millie Vanilli put out that album of just of the original guys, you know. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't terrible. And then of course, Rob and Fab put out an album of them actually singing and 
maybe songwriting a little, I don't know, but, uh, but you know, Fabrice could really sing. I mean, he ended up having a, he I, I, think he, I think he has kind of a music career ish, but, uh, yeah, Rob rest his soul, uh, great dancer, great dancer. Um, <laughs> yeah, a great, a great dancer for sure. Not as much in the singing, but no, great no. Yeah. All right, let's move on. We could probably do that one for an entire show. Um, are you guys considering having more guests? We would love to have more guests. Um, and we've had a couple episodes where, you know, we had kind of a decent opportunity and, uh, and we reached out and, um, you know, scheduling timing, whatever it may be, or we've kind of put the episode on hold, um, thinking that we might be able to get a guest for it in the future. So we've had a few of those, obviously the Rupert Holmes thing was awesome and worked out great. Um, I'll tell you what would help is, you know, if you guys continue to leave us comments and reviews and those types of things, those are, that's really how you kind of gauge these, you know, podcasts. And if you're able to say you have X amount of downloads and listeners and X amount of reviews, particularly on Apple podcast, you know, that's always a good way to put yourself in a good position to um, have more and more guests that want to join you. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that that's something that you'll probably see more of as we go forward. Here's another one. What is the most useless talent each of you have uh, doing doing podcasts? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Talking about music. <laughs> um, I can. Um, so I, I don't. Some people call it gleek. Some people call it yang. You know where you kind of move your tongue and mouth a certain way, and like spit kind of flies out of the bottom of your tongue in sort of a launch sort of method. I can do that on command. Which is extremely useless, um, but uh, but nonetheless, something I can do. I remember you practicing that. Well, of course. <laughs> yeah. How else did people spend their time back? You know. Yeah. Back in the eighties. Yeah. For me, I you know I I'm not very talented in general, but if you say, you know, what are some useless talents? I mean, one of them is just to connect it a little bit to music. I have this uncanny ability to remember the years that albums came out. You know, I can't remember what I had for dinner yesterday, but I, I can just, I can remember the years that albums came out for sure. Is that useless so, though? It's proven to be quite useless Is for it, me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's nice when you're doing a podcast, but I, I, outside of music, I would say one very useless talent that I have, my hair grows incredibly fast. Hmm. And I, I, you know, and a lot of people said, oh, that's, that's great, but it's really not. It's very annoying because you either have to grow your hair out and not get a haircut every few weeks, or you have to get a haircut every few weeks. And both of those things are a little bit annoying at times. But yeah, my, my hair and my head can grow incredibly fast. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty useless. Yeah, <laughs> it's quite useless. Yeah. yeah, it's good for the local hair salons. But for me, yeah, it's pretty useless. Hmm. All right, well, let's, uh, let's get to the next one here. Was Vanilla Ice, otherwise known as Rob Van Winkle, sampling or stealing from Queen and David Bowie? <laughs> I mean, the obvious answer here is he, he wasn't doing either because his went ding, 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 did a ding, 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 did a ding, ding. <laughs> the other one just went ding, 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 did a ding, 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 did it. So that's right. I, you know, so it was nothing like it. Total difference. Yeah. Total difference. One of the great video clips of, of the early nineties was his explanation of that. And he was so, so proud of himself when he, he made that observation, you know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That, that was, that's, that's, that's a keeper. That's a yeah. keeper. 
Yeah, it's actually um, it's not a sample. It's a it's a ripoff, but a credited one at least. Eventually, I don't, I don't know how that all shook well, out. In no, reason. no, it's not because his went ding, 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 You know, come on, exactly. Yeah, probably. I would say T. I, I still, you know, it's it's a tough. I don't know. It's a tough choice, but I still prefer Under Pressure by Queen and Bowie. Oh, do you? Maybe I would say I do. It's a real tough choice, though. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty wacky. That was pretty wacky time. That whole time period where hair metal kind of came to the end of its deal, like right at the end of the eighties, late eighties on the deal there. And, uh, and the start of grunge, which was like two years later. So if you go like 89, 90, some of 91, like shit was just weird. I mean, it was like all that, like R and B stuff and, you know, like color me bad. And, you know, the new Jack city soundtrack. And I mean, all, <laughs> all kinds of weird stuff. And, uh, you know, some of it was great, you know, Stevie B, uh, yeah, some of that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Fant- you and your Stevie B. Yeah. I mean, fantastic. But, uh, some of it was, uh, pretty, pretty crappy. It was your, you make a great point. It was a very strange time in music, both creatively and from a music business perspective, which is exactly why, it was so ripe for grunge to come along and just destroy everything. You know, it was so similar to when the sex pistols came along in the late seventies and sort of destroyed everything that was going on in the UK. Right. You know, grunge had a very similar role here in America and and I think it did its job. And I think that uh, there was definitely that the seeds were planted for something to come along and wipe it all away. It's a little bit like what the garage rock thing did in the early two thousands too, but, but not to the, extent commercially that that grunge played for sure yeah there was a um i don't know if you remember this one there was this great compilation called living in the 90s and it, it had like a brick wall and like spray painted living in the 90s on the front and it was this double disc it was one of those tv you know one eight call 1-800 to order living in the 90s oh yeah deals yeah yeah and like it's just all that stuff we're talking about you know it's like all that like r&b pop stuff that like was pretty much between 89, 90, 91. And yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty good. Listen, you know, you get to, <laughs> you get to, to order it. Did you have to dial one, 900 mix a lot and kick those nasty thoughts? Well, 900 was a whole different deal. If you dialed a one, 900, you were, you were going down a different road. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You were, yeah. you were ordering something else, you know, yeah. but uh, yeah. yeah, it was one of those like time life type deals where, you know, but uh, yeah, living in the nineties. Speaking of baby got back to, I, I, it, I just thought of this. One of the first CDs I bought was the CD single yeah. for Baby Got Back. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> how times develop because within like two years, I was listening to Yes and Genesis, you know? Yeah. But I do remember buying that single for five ninety nine or whatever it was. It was one of those Digipack fold out maxi singles, you know? I think this, I think it was on the cover of that, but also in the video just those giant butt cheeks you know? <laughs> yeah, that was the cover that was the, yeah, that was the cover of that single <laughs> that like sir mix a lot was like sitting on you know just <laughs> yeah, totally enormous butt cheeks yeah. <laughs> uh all right so well speaking of i guess what song do you only like because of the music video and what song do you not like because of the music video anything come to mind on that one nub i'll say this that you know the the, the no rain song by blind melon uh, it is actually a pretty nice little 90s song but even back then the b-girl video it just it just ruined it for me 
you know, it just ruined it for me. I thought that was, I mean, it's not like a bad video or anything. It's just, you know, when, when the video becomes that connected with the song, it kind of ruins the song. That's actually a really good call. I mean, that was, it was, a, it was an annoying video, um, but it also was just played oh, yeah. so frequently. Yeah. I mean, remember yeah. during that phase on MTV where like the B girl was the thing and, you know, that video was played multiple times a day for sure. So that, that's a good call. So I would say that a song that I probably would like if it weren't for the music video would be, and I don't know if you remember this T, but in the eighties, Mick Jagger and David Bowie did a uh, cover <laughs> of dancing in the street. Oh yeah. <laughs> which is, it's a Motown song that I I've always really liked. And the actual song is, I mean, you know, it's Bowie and Jagger, like, you know, it had to be somewhat interesting, but the video it was Bowie and Jagger. All right. Yeah. The, the, the video is so insanely ridiculous. The video is incredibly like homoerotic, you know, oh, like yeah. oh, Bowie yeah. and Jagger are like super close to each other, like singing, like staring at each other the whole time. It's, and it's like, just make out already. Like, what are you, yeah, guys, what yeah. are you guys doing? Just, go, just go for it. I mean, yes, yeah. yes, exactly. It was pretty odd. Uh, you know, I think that it's actually really cool. And, and there are a lot of songs where you can't hear them as long as you don't hate the song where you can't hear them without thinking about the video. So like sabotage, you know, BC boys. I mean, just awesome video, right? You always think of those guys running around with the mustaches and the shades and everything. Great video. Yeah. Um, Hungry like the wolf. Oh, or, yeah. Or, or Rio, you know, when they're on the boat. I mean, just, you know, those are, and, and again, we grew up on some of those things. Take on me, aha. Uh-huh. Just, that's iconic. It is just mm-hmm. a freaking iconic video. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, these songs that, uh, I mean, even Jeremy, which I, I didn't really, the video is a little melodramatic, but, you know, it, it's a song that every time you hear it, you think of at least some part of, of that video. You know, Wait, so. did you just say something good about Pearl Jam? Yeah, I know. Wow. Mark it down, folks. I know. I know. And I, I got to, th- I want to throw a couple more in there. Rocket by Herbie Hancock. That video rules. Yeah. With all the stuff in the family room moving, you know. Uh, Can I throw one out that's kind of a, an, a little bit out of the box, but l- let's sure. see what your reaction is. Sure. Separate Ways by Journey. Oh, yeah. Where they're faking the ins. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And remember during the chorus bits when the five of them are just kind of standing there in a row and they're just yeah. like, they're all pumping the fist, you know, at the same time and like stomping their leg, like pumping the fist. Yeah. Yeah. The imagery of that. And I've always liked that song anyway, but the video certainly kind of makes it, you know, very, very good. Very, very good. I, um, you know, there are a couple songs where at the time the video sort of really ruined the song for me, but I've since come to really love the song now that you don't equate it with the video. Like nothing compares to you by Sinead O'Connor. Like I hated that. It was just like her big old face, you know? And like, I thought the video was like so dumb. Oh, really? And, and I love and I love the song. Yeah, but I didn't love the song until I could sort of get away from the video a little bit. Is that right? Because I I think that video is so. I mean, it's going to sound like a big softy, but I think that video is so kind of just real and authentic. And you know, mm-hmm. she starts crying during the last chorus. And she's really belting it out. You see that tear come down. I just think it's yeah. really powerful, honestly. Yeah, well, now you're making me feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. It is a dumb video just in, in terms of like, you know, it, it, it's, it's not there to impress anybody, but I just, I found it to be very organic and yeah. And, and that song is just so 
incredible. Like, oh yeah, put anything uh, to it. I think it'd be love okay. the song. Love the song. Um, I think another noteworthy video is uh, "Right Now" by Van Halen. It, that video was so cool at the time. Didn't show the band at all. Right, it was just the kind of flashing segments of right now, somebody is this right now, somebody, it, it was so cool. Such a cool concept at that time, a, a true film to accompany the, uh, the song rather than just showing the band lip syncing and you know, all that kind of stuff. Another was- reason too, why Van Hagar is always going to be better than Van Roth because they would have never done something that sort of socially conscious with David Lee Roth at the helm. Right. I would have to agree. I would have to agree with that. All right. Well, um, that was a pretty good question. So next, when people say they hate band blank, you can not like them and never, ever recover. (laughs) That's a great question. I definitely have a few on my list. And I think people get too obvious with this one because it's like the Beatles or, you know, but that that to me is not, you know, I think there's plenty of reasons for somebody to to not. Like the Beatles. No, I yeah, think it's, yeah. I think it's absolutely nuts, but I would agree if, I mean, if anybody doesn't like Eurasia, I'm kind of like, really? Cause, cause I mean, to not like them, you must not like pop melody, nostalgia, fun, uh, catchy. I mean, how could, how could you, I could see like, if they're not one of your favorites, but to say like, I don't like them. That would be pretty questionable. I think from my standpoint, that'd be tough. That's a pretty good call. Yeah. I like that one. Cause, cause it would reveal something about just their overall approach to, you know, enjoyment. You know? It's life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Being like a razor. And, and I would probably use the same rationale for my band. And I would say, you know, and this is a tribute to, I think two weeks ago uh, for you for running around and in your head, I, I would say ACDC. Yeah. You know, if somebody says, I don't like ACDC, <laughs> then I, I really don't have any time for them. Yeah. You know? Because think about what that means, you know, and it's the same idea as Erasure in a totally different way. But if you can't get down with, you know, Bon Scott and Brian Johnson and Angus Young and the whole thing, then you're probably not really that cool. And you're sure as hell not that fun to be around, you know? Yeah. I, the, the only other thing that, because I, you know, I think there are lots of reasons to, I mean, to to your point about the Beatles, it's like, you know, plenty of reasons to not like them. The only other artist I would include in this is Weird Al Yankovic. I mean, if if anybody like thinks that Weird Al is like dumb or or like, oh, he's not funny. They're like too mature for I mean, then like, honestly, that one, I think you should just be deported, you know, that's that's, that's a that's a pretty good call. Almost un-American to to. You know, if you were to take that position on, uh, on the great weird Al. So, all right, next one. What makes someone a bad, we've talked about this over the years. What makes someone a bad concert date? Oh, I love that question. Great question. It. Great question. There's a few things that would go for me. Uh, number one would probably be if they don't want to go and, um, how do you say this? Enjoy a libation. You know, at the uh, at the show, if they if they want to just go and they're so into the music that they don't want to, you know, go buy a thirteen dollar beer or a, a wine cooler or something like that, you know, and just enjoy themselves and have a good time. That that to me is the sign of a bad concert buddy. I've been at shows with you where you passed on a beverage. 
probably back in the day, but remember you and I have been to a lot of shows and I don't see you and I as concert buddies, right? We're more like, we've been to so many shows together that, you know, and we've gone on weeknights when we have early meetings the next day. So that makes total sense. But I'm kind of talking about somebody that you almost like, you know, when you're taking somebody on a date or something like that to a show, or you say with a bunch of buddies, you say, Hey, let's get tickets to this and go to blah, blah, blah. I think you and I sort of don't count in any of this. Yeah. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with yeah. you hundred yeah. percent. Um, one of the moves I've always hated, and we've talked about this over the years is the concert stand behind move. So oh, this yeah. is where the guy. So I guess what would make a bad date is if like the girl wanted you to do this, but like when the guy like stands behind the girl and sort of like puts his arms around her and they like sort of like shimmy together, never do that during a concert. That's just a, yeah, that's just a bad move. It's and it's a, like the it's guy, a, it's a classless, uh, <laughs> just, yeah. just ridiculous move uh, for you to make during a show. I mean, you know, you should stand side by side with your girl and pump your fist and shout the lyrics and have a good time. But the concert stand behind is a, is a pretty disgraceful move. I think, what do you think? Dom? I, I totally agree with you. It's disgraceful too. And it, it's, it's born out of that insecurity of like, you know, I, I need to hang on so tight that I hope, you know, they can't leave me. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. so, it's pathetic. It's like, and I've seen it happen at, at shows where, you know, it's not a slow song by any means. And you still got that stand behind. Yes. Thing that. It's terrible. Yeah. It's, it's uh, terrible. I've seen so I've seen some shows and to your point during some songs where it's like, all right, you for sure can't do it during this. Like that's correct. Just, yeah. You, know, you just need to leave. I, yeah. I've, 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 I've thought about maybe just calling security, like just get, get these guys out of here. Yeah. Can we get this guy out of here? Yeah. yeah. This is a problem. One other move I would add to our list is somebody who knows the words to the song that's being played and feels like they need to let everybody in the venue know that they know the words. Yes. It's very annoying. I, I totally agree with that. And maybe even worse is the person who doesn't know the words, but is so desperate to, that they're like mouthing along, but, yeah. they're, on, yeah. but they're on like yeah. a three second delay to make it look like they're catching every word, but they actually don't know it. And you can yes. tell. Totally. Yeah. That's kind of a stupid move too. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of concert faux pas, you know, there, there are, there's a lot of ways it can go wrong when you look at who you go with, you know? No question. No question. Kind of just the, the, I would say too, but just like the basic behavior and etiquette between songs is a big one for me, you know, because um, you go sometimes to shows, this is more of a guy thing, I think, but where dudes, they'll just scream in between songs and yell yeah. out, you make requests and just, they want to be noticed. They, they want to be yes. part, of, part of the show. Yeah. 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 Like we're on the other side of the curtain for a reason. You know what I mean? Like, and it's not to interject ourselves in ridiculous ways. So I would say just the overall thing of like cheering and clapping and all that kind of stuff too, is if somebody makes a misstep in that way, that's a, uh, that's a certain red flag for sure. Absolutely. That's a good question. All right. Here's one. Uh, what, what kind of stuff do you guys like to watch on YouTube? Non-music related. Oh, that's a great question. That is a good question. Um, let's see. I'm going to just kind of, you know, YouTube has that thing where you can look at your history. I'll tell you what I, um, I'm fairly like obsessed with studying, um, commercial airplane crashes. Like that's like kind of a thing that, you know, I've, I've, 
have subscribed to every season of air disasters, which was a Smithsonian channel show. And there's this guy on YouTube. His name is, uh, Alec Joshua eBay, I B A Y. And he recreates, um, kind of famous or well-renowned, um, commercial airplane crashes from all the way back in sort of, you know, the middle of the century until now, uh, in the middle of the 20th century until now. And, you know, it's a recreation from the cockpit. It plays you all the air traffic control, sometimes in its original form. It explains to you step by step kind of what happened. I that that is something that like fascinates me. <laughs> so I'm constantly on YouTube watching uh those videos by uh Alec or you know um different TV shows air, air disasters there's one called Mayday that are sort of mini documentaries cuz I'm fascinated by some of the like engineering and aerodynamic stuff that caused it I'm also very very intrigued by what was done afterwards from a safety standpoint to keep it from happening again in the future there's always like a little bit of a it's always sad especially when there are fatalities, but you know, it's always a little bit uplifting in a way because in every instance, there's something that the NTSB or, you know, or one of the um, aviation companies had to do to kind of recognize the reason for it and then make sure it doesn't happen again. So that's something I'm, I'm spending a lot of time often on, on YouTube doing. Uh, for me, I watch, uh, I wa- for, so I watch a ton of sports, you know, I love watching press conferences and highlights and all that kind of good stuff. And especially for the teams I follow and we've talked about our respective alma maters. So all things, Ohio state and all things, Detroit sports teams. I like to watch, but beyond that, cause that's very seasonal. I like to watch a lot of long form interviews and probably in my opinion, the best long form interviewer in the world right now, and maybe the best ever is Joe Rogan. I watch a ton of Joe Rogan, long form podcast interviews. I love his whole approach. He's very balanced. He's inquisitive. He's naturally curious. He's got a really interesting background himself. And and I sometimes I'll just put on full episodes of Joe Rogan. These are like two hour, you know, two and a half hour interviews in some cases. And I just sort of get lost in the conversation. And it's something you could sort of pay some attention to, but not total attention to and still be sort of engaged. So I dig that. And then music wise, I love YouTube videos where people make lists and where they, um, well, this was non music, the question, but oh, it's non music. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh <laughs> no, I'll skip that. Okay. Um, in a previous life, I taught history. So I love pulling up things that are related to history, you know, clips. I don't like a lot of unofficial things. I don't like homemade things. I, I like primary sources. I like things that come from people who know what they're talking about. You like a lot of Richard Nixon stuff, right? Tons of Nixon. I'm, yeah. I'm obsessed with 1970s American history and the Vietnam War and Nixon's presidency and those kind of things. And um, being one who taught American history, you know, I'm always searching for different takes on history. And again, that a lot of times turns into long form interviews or conversations. So yeah. I dig all that. Yeah, I'm kind of looking through. I've I've been I've been lately watching a lot of uh, skeet shooting video. I'm into skeet shooting, you know, shotgun shooting targets, and and uh, I'm trying to be a better skeet shooter. So I've been watching a lot of you know tips and uh, instructional videos on how to how to shoot better. But uh, the other thing is a lot of comedy. You know, a lot of uh, 
you know, stand up and those type of things, sketch shows and those type of things that are kind of hard to find uh, in many cases, you know, like to like to watch a lot of that stuff on on the uh, on the YouTube as well. So I guess, you know, this one, since I sort of mentioned one person asked, are you guys into comedy and do you have any favorites? So any kind of stand up or whatnot type uh, comedy favorites? nub? I'm not into comedy. I hate to laugh. I think I think comedy is stupid, you know. I'd agree. Let's just move on. Let's move on to the next question. (laughs) I think we're both very influenced by generations of of stand up comedy. You know, i I think that stand up comedy is one of the most challenging and toughest and most amazing art forms out there. For somebody to just stand up there and not only engage an audience by themselves, but to to engage them by laughter and being comedic, I, I I just think is amazing. So. Yeah, I think it's been really influential on us. And so for for me personally, you know, I, I I've never really found a stand-up comedian that has been funny for long periods of time. I think you always have to look at their their kind of heyday. But for me, I love the original kind of first couple specials from Chris Rock and Eddie Murphy. Yeah. I think those are incredibly influential, especially kind of Bring the Pain by Chris Rock is un- unbelievable. Maybe the best comedy special ever. I mean, it's unreal. It's incredible. And Delirious by Eddie Murphy, you know, and, and you know, kind of as like a white dude from the suburbs too, it was really, I think comedy was a great glimpse into, you know, black culture and learning more from Chris Rock and Eddie Murphy, I think was really enlightening. Uh, so I would say that's a good example of, of comedy, may- maybe making you a little smarter, a little more aware. I really like the later stuff from George Carlin. When George yeah. Carlin got old, those last couple specials before he died are just so, so they're just so amazing. His whole approach and his whole kind of take on life and his calling out of all of the nonsense that was existing in the world around the time where he got old. I, I just thought those specials were really amazing. And I, you know, I'm a huge Woody Allen fan, so uh, of more of his films, but I love going back and hearing his original stand-up comedy stuff, just because it's it's his humor, and you know, it's it. I, I like hearing that. That's kind of been a recent. I've been a fan fan of his films for years, but going back and checking on his early stand-up was pretty cool as well. So yeah, I, I would throw uh, Eddie Izzard dressed to kill is one of the better stand-up specials ever. Oh yeah. Um, you know, as it went on, his stuff, I don't think was quite as good, but dressed to kill is pretty incredible. I was like, I've been over here like scribbling, making sure I don't miss anybody. But, you know, you mentioned Chris Rock. I would, uh, I would throw him a huge fan of Norm Macdonald, big fan of Tom Green. I know his stuff isn't as stand up driven, but I, I love Tom Green's comedy just as a whole. Um, and then mostly, you know, kind of the older stuff. I mean, uh, big fan of Kevin Nealon, uh, loved Mitch Hedberg. Anthony Jeselnik is probably the current uh, stand-up that I'm. If I depict somebody that's more current and more recent, I, I think Jeselnik's pretty brilliant. But you know, old stuff. I mean, Kinnison, uh, phenomenal. Gary Shandling was great. Uh, Andy Kaufman, huge fan. Old Red Fox stand-up was great. Um, so yeah, m- mostly. Oh, Rodney Dangerfield. I mean, incredible stand-up. Um, so yeah, mostly, mostly older stuff, which is again, what kind of makes the YouTube cruise, you know, kind of fun. One thing I'd recommend to people is, um, and this kind of connects to the YouTube bit because I like to watch some comedy on YouTube as well, but you know, Louis CK who, you know, went through his troubles. Yeah. He, he just did a special. So oh, he's, did he? yes, he's kind of putting his career back together. 
Nice. And it is hilarious yeah, because he great. talks about it. He references it. His whole take on the kind of the, you know, scandal, whatever you want to call it yeah. that he went through is just so humorous and funny and really What's it on. Is it a Netflix thing or I found it on YouTube. I don't know who, okay. who actually produced it. Okay. Um, you know, everyone should check it out for sure. You mentioned Izzard is great. And we both need to definitely mention Mitch Hedberg. I mean, talk about yeah. somebody who, you know, had such a unique style and was so, you know, had such an impact in such a short time. Yeah. You know, he was pretty amazing. I was lucky. That was one of those, you know, we talked about the Grateful Dead and a couple other things. I I got to see Mitch Hedberg uh, just a couple of years before he died and really, really glad I got to see him live out in Ann Arbor. It was really good. Yeah, that guy was one of a kind. All right, next one. What concert did you go to that you didn't really want to tell anyone you went to because you were ashamed? <laughs> <laughs> I, I went, uh, well, I, I sort of through work, uh, we had like a little incentive thing uh, back when, you know, I had, a, I had a team many years ago and that if they hit certain goals, then we would go do something fun one night. And uh, we ended up, I'm not as ashamed of this one. We went to the Backstreet Boys and, you know, that was pretty good. I mean, I, I, I like the Backstreet Boys and they got some great songs and we actually had a good time, but I don't know if I'd really volunteer that I went, um, but, you know, I'll admit it was okay. The one that was a little bit of a hard sit was Katy Perry. And that was, that was, I think the next year, I almost didn't want my team to hit their objectives and goals because I really didn't want to go to see Carrie, but I, I just, I'm not a Katy Perry fan. I, I think she's pretty phony and fairly not that talented and I'm just not a fan. And then this show was like just the biggest like production you've ever seen, you know? And it was kind of like, you know, if she was talented, you wouldn't need all this crap. I mean, the, the stage production and the, lights and the visuals it was just it was absolutely absurd that was a little bit of a that was a wood chop as we call it of an evening it was kind of like you know that <laughs> yeah that chop. was a two-hour show that felt like six hours you know but uh yeah that was one that i gave it a fair chance but i got about 10 minutes into that and it was like oh shit like when is this going to be over yeah. <laughs> i want to reach back a little bit more for mine because i think this is more of a thing when you're when you're younger, I mean, you, you gave some good examples of more present day, but nowadays, it, yeah, I, you know, I'll go see anybody. And I, I, I don't, I don't tend to have a lot of shame nowadays for going to see bands, but when I was younger, I remember, and we've talked about this on a previous episode, there was a, you know, three or four year stretch where our dad was taking us to a ton of shows at Pine Knob and he wouldn't usually sit and watch with us. He'd be upstairs, but he would take us. And and so there was this thing where he would always take us to shows where one time it was kind of reverse where we were sort of, you know, bringing him along to our bands. Most of the time he was like, okay, I want you to come and see James Taylor with me at the palace of Auburn Hills. God rest its soul. And I remember I was like 13, 14. And I, I really didn't want to tell anybody that I went to see James Taylor because we were so used to having this <laughs> cool concert reputation. And that's and, funny. Cause now everyone would be like, yeah, you went and saw JT sweet. But right, at that yeah, time, yeah. at that time in, in that time period, it kind of wasn't cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. and in the seventies, it would have been incredibly cool to go see James Taylor. Right. But this was the early nineties and he, he sort of, you know, he's kind of like an old bald guy, you know? And I remember I kind of went, more feeling like I had to go more than anything else. And I didn't want to tell any of my friends 
that I was going to that show. And I remember, remember this so much because I left really saying, man, that was pretty good. And it was, it was cool. It was just him and a guitar and maybe a couple guys backing yeah. him up, but, but still didn't want to tell people, you know, because I thought <laughs> it wouldn't be a, a cool at school the next day. And we were so used to like sort of shamelessly broadcasting these shows that we go to wearing the t-shirt the next day and all that. Oh yeah. But for James Taylor, I really didn't want anyone to know. You didn't wear the James Taylor tee the next day. Yeah, it's like the only time where I wasn't begging to buy a t-shirt, you know, a $35 <laughs> shirt at the, uh, the, the souvenir booth. What musician were you most starstruck by meeting? Uh, mine is not a star by, by any means, but uh, when I met uh, Ken Andrews, who is the front man of failure at the time, he had just played a show with his band called year of the rabbit. And then he did a solo thing and now he's back with failure. He's a very acclaimed producer. Certainly failure is one of my all time favorite bands. Um, when I got the chance to meet him, it was in New York city, uh, year of the rabbit, which was a band he was, he formed for a short time. They only did one, one album really good album um they played at this really small place called mercury lounge in new york city and you know after the show i mean i just kind of stalked ken a little bit and just sort of hung out and waited for you know them to be loading their stuff in the back and i was like so i was so nervous i mean i, I was with my friend kate and like i mean she was just cracking up she had never seen me like that and i went up to him and just did the whole, like, you are my biggest fan, tongue tied, you know, just thing. And like, <laughs> you know, started naming off all these obscure songs. Cause I wanted him to know that I like really dug into his stuff, you know? And, uh, and he was, he's a really nice, you know, pretty soft-spoken dude. And, and I remember he was like, you know, I'm going to go get a um, bottle of wine and then I'll come back. Cause I'd love to keep talking to you. And I was like, okay, okay, Mr. Andrews, whatever, you know, I mean, I'm, I was like 25 at the time. So, you know, I wasn't like a kid. Um, and, I, and then he, he left and I was like, oh, this is probably his move. Like I'll never see him again. And then like two minutes later, he came back with his wine and we like sat down and like just hung out for like 20 minutes and just talked about, you know, his producing and, you know, the records he had done to that point and the band failure. And I told him how we saw them open for tool and all this stuff. I mean, it was, it was a very, very special moment for me. Now, my friend that I was with just laughed her ass off. Cause she's like, who is this guy? I don't know. Like he just played in front of like 20 people and you're like shaking, <laughs> you know, but uh, that, that was a, that was easily the most starstruck I've been. He was, you know, at that time and, and certainly now, you know, a, a uh, musical, you know, hero for me. And that was, it was one of those moments I was kind of bummed you weren't there because that would have been a lot of fun. But yeah, uh, <laughs> for, for me, it isn't a marquee name. It's uh, it's Ken Andrews of uh, failure. So how about you, Nub? Anybody come to mind? He's a marquee name for you and I, that's for sure. So, we, you know, we've referenced on the podcast before, this all changed a little bit when I started reviewing music because when it's your job to talk to musicians, it's a starstruck thing doesn't really come into play. And I told, you know, I told one story about interviewing Ralph from Craftwork and how Im impactful it was, you know, starstruck. I don't know if I would use that word, but that was a huge deal. And we also told this story about meeting Peter Steele, which was a huge deal. And that was super fanboy, but 
we already told that story. So and that's one I'm, I'm bummed. I wasn't with you because that was yeah. what you've told the story before on the podcast where, you know, he said, well, it was only great because you were there. You know, <laughs> yeah. Like, still the greatest thing anyone's like ever said to me. And, and for work, you know, there was, when I, when I interviewed Gary Newman, I mean, that was a huge deal for me. That was, it was hard not to become fanboy and try and keep it more yeah. professional because it was my job. But, but so I'm going to choose one specifically that had nothing to do with reviewing music. And this was a really interesting one. So you and I, you took me to my first Unfreeze McGee show oh, yeah. at Clutch Cargo's in Pontiac, which is now defunct, like most venues in, Detroit, in the Detroit area. And, uh, it, you know, it was a big deal because you were really into this band and it was my first show. But what was really appealing to me was the, the opener, uh, which was Adrian Ballou, King Crimson. And we actually got there at the very, very end of his set. I mean, we saw like, we saw him play Thela Hungenji and that was it. And because and, and we, we were late, you know, the whole thing. If I remember correctly, we took a limo. Uh, yeah. Like a group of like 20 people and things maybe got a little out of hand in the limo. They did. And that's why we were late. <laughs> so, you know, we, and here I am, you know, kind of just like, oh, I really want to get there and see Adrian Ballou and, and everyone else we're with is like, we don't even know who this person yeah, is. Didn't, let's didn't just care. Keep, yeah, yeah. Let's keep driving around. Yeah. And so my wife, now wife, but then girlfriend Lee was with us and she knew that this was a big deal to me. And we, we got there in just enough time to see, like I said, Adrian play one of King Crimson's most famous songs to close his set. It was very cool. So Humphreys McGee comes on and they're playing and this is my first Humphreys show and everything's a little new for me. And, and they're, they're in one of their, you know, 45 minute doodles. And so we're walking back and there's like a little room off to the side. This is the, it's the weirdest thing ever to think about this. And I look over and Adrian blue sitting in this room by himself playing guitar. And I, I kind of like peek my head in and I'm just, I'm just like, how is this really happening? And you know, it wasn't really my style at the time to like, just like bother people. Like, you know, he's, he's probably enjoying some time to himself that he doesn't have a lot of. And so I had this initial thought of like, well, don't bother him. Just walk by. And then I'm like, oh, hell no. Like, I'm not going to miss this opportunity. So I kind of peeked in and was just like, you know, Adrian, like, you know, Hey, and, and he could not have been nicer. I never knew if he'd be a nice guy or not. He was the kindest most gracious. He was just like, come on in. Well, you know, and I was asking him questions about King Crimson and he was willing to talk about everything. And we just sat there and, and chatted for like 10 or 15 minutes. And it was such a thrill because it was so spontaneous and so unique. And I was super fanboy. I mean, I, I, I went right into like starstruck mode. Well, better you than me. I was in no shape to meet a celebrity at that point. <laughs> yeah, this is true. Uh, of this the is evening. a fact. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I know you guys play in a band together. Any good gig nightmare stories? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Every band has gig nightmare stories. For yeah. Sure. I mean, we, you know, we had a terrible outing, uh, a couple years ago where we were playing at this really cool rock club in Ann Arbor called the blind pig, which is actually very famous. And we use one of the things that's a little bit complicated about our Anders Orange setup is we actually use a um, backing track, you know, because there are some songs where, you know, it's, it, we're a trio, but you can't really capture the keyboard elements and those types of things. So, so I have in-ear monitors and Nubs actually puts on headphones and we play along with a click track and, you know, it's kind of fun. It's a, it's a little bit of a different skill, you know, of, of playing with a track live and all that. But it does provide some technical challenges. And, and, you know, as we are first getting 
the sort of rig that produces this backing track setup. We often had some issues. Well, everything was wired perfectly. We were ready to go. And um, we were using a, an iPod, like an Apple iPod, to project this backtrack. And we could not get it to work right. You were hearing the click and the track over the loudspeaker, which obviously the track is what you want to hear, not the click. And we just could not figure out. Everything was wired perfectly. It was so frustrating. We ended up having to play kind of an abbreviated set. I mean, it was just awful. And um, everything was wired perfectly. The problem is on this playing device, on this iPod, there was a mono setting. Uh, So you could do mono or stereo. And it was this buried setting. Like You had to click like five different categories within settings to put it on stereo. And we needed it to be on stereo because we were pushing one channel out, but not both. So it was just this awful, like we could not get this thing to work and nobody knew why. And then you start unplugging stuff and plugging stuff in. And I mean, it's just, that was probably the the worst deal because, you know, we had rehearsed really hard and we were good to go and the backtrack was going to be awesome. And, you know, this place has a really good mixing board and, you know, so we learned that night to make sure you check uh, to make sure that it's on stereo, not mono. Uh, and I didn't, and I actually figured that out on act. We, we went the whole rest of the night having no clue what happened, which just made it even more frustrating. It was like a couple days later, we realized it when we were back in the studio and we were kind of like trying like hell to troubleshoot and dissect what happened. And it was just so that made it even more annoying. It was just one stupid little setting on the playing device. So that's the one, you know, Nubs, you've played with a few more bands than I had, but obviously that was the one that we had together, which was certainly a nightmare at the time. Yeah, that one was. And yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've been playing in bands that have gigged since I was 14. So, you know, I I've run the gamut of, of different things, you know, whether it's playing a gig for, you know, five people, or all the gamut of technical problems that can happen. But one that stands out to me, T, that's, that's not you and I, but it's our other brother, Scott, is we, Scott and I played in bands quite a bit growing up. And then we reconvened after I was in college for this project in, in maybe our third show. And we were still kind of feeling it out. We had some new guys that we were playing with. And we were playing at a small place on the east side of Detroit. And like our older brother always had problems with his, his knees. and we started the first song and like halfway through the, and we were actually playing pretty well. Like it was feeling good. And it was, you know, this was a new band. Yeah. And we're like halfway through the first song and Scott who played guitar and vocals, he just hits the deck like a ton of bricks and his knee like dislocated. And it was just, it was like unbelievable. Like everyone was looking at each other, like what on earth is going on? And like, he couldn't get up and he couldn't move. And it took like, it felt like two hours. I'm sure it was like 10 minutes or whatever, but like we finally kind of got, you know, Humpty Dumpty put back together again. And then he had to sit in a chair and do the rest of the show. Yeah, Like Michael Hauser. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, And it was just the, the whole energy just got like sucked out of the whole gig because he like twisted his knee, you know? And he wasn't even like, he wasn't being theatric or anything. He wasn't like running around by anything. No, he had a, he had a problem that would happen to him. Yeah. It's just like knee, just like cave out, you know, yeah. it's just, yeah, that, that was one that I'll never forget. Uh, getting old's a bitch when you're trying to rock and roll, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, what bands, this is a good one. What bands are particularly good for full catalog shuffle playlists? So I think that means, you know, what's a good band to just 
put that entire band's catalog into a playlist and hit shuffle. And, you know, obviously we're an album podcast, so we're usually pretty pro album, but certainly there are some bands where that's, uh, where that would be a good move. Um, I think you could do that with Bob Marley. I mean, his entire catalog is actually really interesting. You can tell the early stuff from the middle stuff to the later stuff, but I like to shuffle Bob Marley. Um, I like to shuffle the Deftones actually, you know, and that's another one. I mean, each album is great and it certainly, they have their own characteristics, but I think that's a great band to put on and hear the different eras and hear the different studio recordings. Cause they are each kind of different in their own way and revisiting them all in a shuffle format. is pretty fun. I've talked before about public image limited being a band that I love to shuffle. Uh, Sparks is another band that's, that's great to shuffle. So yeah, I mean, for being a, you know, a very pro album, you know, kind of, kind of dude, I, I still think that there are some, uh, groups where you can kind of get away with that pretty, pretty easily. I'll tell you what I, I got, this is kind of weird, but I got this box set many years ago of all of Henry Mancini's soundtracks. And I've put those into a playlist. It's all of his old soundtracks, you know, from the fifties and sixties. And that's a really cool thing to shuffle actually. Cause yeah, I could see that. Yeah. You hear something that's cool and you pull up what movie is this from? And then you look up the movie and learn, it's kind of a nice way to learn some interesting, it was very interesting vibe, uh, uh, musically from, from Mancini during that time with a lot of that soundtrack work. So yeah, those are a few that come to mind for me. I have three really real go-tos and I can't think of many other bands that I do the kind of the whole catalog shuffle with like these three. First is talk, talk, you know, there's something about the catalog and the progression of their sound Hmm. that, and it's the perfect amount of albums. You know, sometimes you just have way too many, you know, the, the, the shuffle isn't quite as effective, but talk, talk really with like five albums, essentially and six, if you include the Mark Hollis solo album, it's a nice shuffle. You get a lot of different dynamics and, but everything's interesting. So it's, it's a good, you know, you can have background music at, if you do that one, or you can also kind of be, you know, paying close attention to it too, because of all the musicality. So that's one second would be Slayer. I love, I have the entire Slayer catalog. That's a good one as a playlist. And that's a great shuffle. Um, and again, you're, you're not like, it's not like you go from the uh, melodic to non-melodic era of Slayer, you know, it's all just kind of punishing, but it's really cool to hear just the different eras and the different ways that they would thrash. So I love Slayer. And then probably the one that I go to the most frequently is King's X just because their material is so solid, but you do get some variety. You know, you get the songs that Doug Pinnock sings, you get the songs that Ty Tabor sings. There's very little fluff on any of their albums, you know, and, and rarely would I ever even think about hitting next on any King's X song let alone an era or an album or anything like that. So King's X is a very, very good shuffle for sure. All good calls. Let's do a few more here. Uh, what band does the other twin like? And you are just like, I've tried, but I don't effing get it. <laughs> <laughs> Easiest question ever. You could probably answer this for me. Number one is Silly Fools. Oh, come on. <laughs> I know it drives you nuts, but you've tried for years, but it, it's the, what they're from Thailand. So this is a shout out to Chad Kreider out in Spain. I, you know, yeah. uh, silly fools are this band from Thailand. So my, my good buddy from college uh, and beyond studied abroad out in, out in Bangkok. And, uh, and 
discovered this band, which is the most popular band in Thailand. And, you know, at that time by far, they're actually still together and they're called the silly fools. And they did this like rock, you know, thing that was very, you know, kind of high energy. And and then they do these ballads. And I just came to love this band out of Thailand. I'm, and I've tried like hell. they've been through some different iterations and I've really, really liked pretty much everything they've put out. And I've tried like hell to get nubs, you know, just remotely interested in this thing. And he just always looks at me like, well, yeah. And it's hell, got, man? it's got nothing to do with the language gap. Like I, I, I listen to tons of music that's not in English. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's like festival rock to me, you know, that's, well, I think yeah, that, that's the, that's the beauty of it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like you, you if, in yeah. fact, you could go on YouTube and pull up some old silly folks clips and they'd play these giant, you know, festival settings and the whole crowd would just be jumping up and down and would know all the like words to their song. I mean, it was a, they were, they were a hugely popular band, but yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a big silly fools guy. What can yeah, I say? yeah. Yeah. So uh, second would be Enya. What? Yeah. I never Why? understood your Enya thing. I mean, oh, Enya's fine, but like you like had the whole catalog. You had it like on yeah. you know, SHM CDs and stuff. Like, I, yeah. it was like, you know, you hear one Enya song, you hear them all. Well, stop it. I, I never understood that whole thing. You know, I just thought it was kind of like I will fall asleep to it thing. But I, I, since since your obsession with Enya, I've you know I've gotten into tons of like really cool ambient music and Brian Eno and like if you really want to get dreamy and stuff like that, there's so many other things out there that are that are more interesting than Enya. I mean, would it, would it change your mind if I told you that Enya's on vinyl now? <laughs> yeah. Nope. Just reissued her stuff about a year ago, so you might want to go pick that up. I actually do have watermark on vinyl. I will admit that. Good <laughs> no, but Enya would be two, and then three. <laughs> the truth, sh- the truth comes out. The yeah, truth yeah, comes there out. you go. And three is uh, my morning jacket, which is a band that I just don't. I just now, don't think is good. Now I'm not that into them anymore. So, so I uh, no, I love well, maybe Z. not anymore. I don't know. Yeah. I loved Z, and you liked Z, I think, a little bit too. Mm. Evil urges was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah one like not, one song, like, not amazing, but pretty interesting. <laughs> and everything they've done since then has been horrible. And I don't like their first record, except for that one song that they always play last and everybody goes nuts. One big holiday. I'm not a big, I've, I've really tailed off. In fact, the last like four records those guys have put out, I've, I've thought have been awful. So on one big one, holiday, I, by the way, is, is amazing for like a minute and a half. And then it just gets lame. Like all their other stuff, you know? Yeah. Well, the ending's cool when they're soloing out. I, I think that's pretty yeah. sweet, but, but I think since then they've kind of sucked mine for you are, I, you know, I'm sure there's something to this. I just need to like try, you know, and dig into it. But the Kate Bush thing, I I just have never quite understood. Part of that is I I think I do need to make the effort and and try because there's got to be something because you're too into it. But I, I really on its face don't really understand the Kate Bush thing. And then some of this, which by the way, means you have just no taste at all, you know? That could be true. And then do you even, do you even like, I, she had like two hits. You, you probably don't know Wuthering Heights. That was her first hit in the UK, but you know, running up that hill, right? Sure. Yeah. And if all it could make a deal with God, and get out to swap. <laughs> I mean, like that song doesn't, that song doesn't move you in any way. You just think it's, you don't like it. Well, the, what you just did moved me. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, you know, it takes some discovery. There's no doubt about it, you know, but yeah. And look, I can understand not, 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 uh, maybe a little bit of an acquired taste, but man, we, yeah, there you go. See, come on now. 
David Gilmore on guitar, by the way. David Gilmore. Name a song no one should ever sing at karaoke. My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You, you could sing that brilliantly and that would still be a horrible karaoke choice. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and then the other thing is like sometimes you get into this like um metal, but not like full metal. It's it's sort of like that crappy metal thing of like like Mudvayne and like Chevelle and like that, that one show you took me to of the Creed guitar player. What was that show? you? That oh, you Alter Bridge. I mean, I was like bored to death at that oh, show. How I can mean, anyone be like, bored at an Alter Bridge show? Oh my God. Really? I thought they were so shitty. So sometimes like there's this like, you'll, you'll be like, yeah, the new like Chevelle album is so good. And it's like, really? Cause I listened to it and everything just sounded like pretty much the same as oh you know, man so heartbreaking whatever. chevelle is like one of the great bands we still have that's around <laughs> by the way their new album is awesome too i mean everything they've done is awesome chevelle's like they're like a top 20 band for me i mean some of that stuff i like you know we talked about nickelback a couple episodes ago and and you know uh breaking benjamin i think's great like there's some of that stuff that's really cool really good but man there's a couple things you like where it's like are we hearing the same thing here? I don't know. Man, I, you were bored at Alter Bridge. Miles Kennedy oh, yeah. is like such a great frontman. He's got an incredible voice. I and was, Mark Tremonti is like one of my favorite guitarists. I, just, I, I like wanted that show to end. Oh, man. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. Well, anyway, I, I still think you got great taste, buddy. Well, so, so what were the three? It was Kate Bush. Uh, well, Kate Bush. And then I guess a multitude of crappy metal. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, all right. Back in the day when we could still go to live shows, and we will again, you hang in there. Uh, what's your take on the seemingly endless supply of Geritol tour acts? I think that means like old, like people who can't like seem to retire. I've seen a few myself of folks that were long in the tooth, shall we say? Bob Seeger, uh, closing on the palace, Elton John, the three year farewell tour. Come on, Reggie, really? <laughs> and then Paul Simon a couple of years ago, they were all entertaining. Do you think they need the money or just love the stage? It's a good question. It's an odd question for me because most of the bands that I truly love are of that category right now. It, are long in the tooth as well. Yeah. It really depends, I think, on a couple of things. Number one is the band that they surround themselves with. So I'll give you an example. Going to see Yes Now is like, it's like hard. And that's, that's my, one of my two favorite bands of all time. But the, the guys like, you know, Alan White can hardly play the drums anymore. And Steve Howe does his best, but you know, he's been around a long time and the, and the lineup changes and, Oh, it's the singer, but not the original singer. Like that stuff becomes really exhausting and hard to take seriously. So I think so much of it depends on who's the band, you know, Elton John's a great example. You know, yeah, he's, you know, hundred years old and, probably shouldn't be touring anymore, but his band is still really on fire. 
you know, and he still plays with great musicians. Paul Simon, I think is the same way. And so a lot of it depends on like, do they surround themselves with, with some youthful spirit and still provide energy at their shows? So, and is it something you could take seriously? And if you could take it seriously and enjoy the show, then, then go and enjoy it because it might be your last opportunity to see it. But if it's become kind of a mockery of itself or it's, it's a band that you don't recognize, or unfortunately you do recognize, but they're so old, they can't play anymore. Then you got to probably let it go and, and not be part of it anymore. In terms of the money, I think they all do it for the money. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the money is just addicting. How do you say no to money to do what they do? You know? Yeah. I, I had a buddy just actually just the other day uh, asked me like, oh, if the Rolling Stones came, like you'd for sure go. Right. I was like, no. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't. And it's not because I don't like the role. It's just, you know, at this point, like it's almost, it's kind of weird. It's like, you know, yeah. um, but I think it is important. You kind of touched on this at the end there. I, I think it's important to keep in mind that this is a job, you know, for a lot of these people. I mean, this is their income. Like, you know, we get up and go to work just the same as they do, you know, and in a lot of ways, they're probably on autopilot at this point. You can go to get out there, do your act, do your show, not have to overthink it, not have to get too crazy about it. Uh, and if there's demand and if you're able to sell tickets and sell merchandise and make income, um, it's just a job like it is to us. And there are some nights where you don't feel like going out. Now, I'm sure when you hit the stage and you hear the crowd, it's like those are the type of things that get you kind of revved up. And it's like, all right, ready to go now. But, you know, you got to go through makeup, you got to go through soundtrack, you got to make sure you're rested up, you got to make sure you're warmed up if you're a vocalist. It's not glamorous, you know? I mean, once you hit the stage, a lot of people think, you know, being on tour must just be this giant party and this giant sort of extravagant deal. It's a lot of craft services. It's a lot of backstage logistics. It's a lot of, you know, sleeping in tour buses for most bands. Um, not seeing kids, not seeing family, the things that we think about if we do a business trip or something like that. I mean, it's, it, you know, there's an illusion to being an audience member. And that is that this is the one time they're doing this. And it's not at all. I mean, they're doing it two days later in a different place and two days after that in a different place and the next day in a different place. And they're, they get sick of it. They can't wait till tours are over, you know, because you're right. It becomes work. It's almost like being a Broadway performer. I mean, you know, they do those shows every night and in some cases twice a day and you have to get out there and pretend like it's your first performance. I mean, these, some of these bands have to get up and play a song that they've played literally thousands of times and, you know, sell it like it's like they're still enjoying it and try and get energy from the crowd and all this type of things. I mean, it's not as easy as you'd think. And I think as these, some of these guys get older, um, it becomes work, but you know, obviously it's, it's better for many than sitting behind a desk, you know? So it's kind of <laughs> job and work can be a uh, relative to many different people in many different areas, but, uh, but it's still work. It's still a job for, for, you know, most of these guys. I think a big thing too, T to also add is that you want your last memory of a band to be what you hang on to. The Rolling Stones is a great example. You know, the one time we saw them was in 1994 at Spartan Stadium on the Voodoo Lounge Tour. And it was an out of this world, great show. Great show. It was an event. And in, in 94, the Stones were old, but they were still really, really good. And that record was an excellent Stones album. And I want that to be my last memory of seeing the Rolling Stones, not 
you know, them 20 years later somewhere else, you know? So I think you kind of like, if you have a good memory of a band and they've gone way past their prime into a place where you don't want that to be your last image of them, then stick with your original last image, you know, whatever that show was that you saw before. Absolutely. What is the T decade routine you guys do? Is that from something? Yeah, that's from uh, Saturday Night Live back in the late, well, I guess late seventies. Uh, that's Al Franken doing uh, that. We're we're doing a kind of a rehash of the Weekend Update bit where Al Franken, who was the I think he was the head writer of the show at the time, came on, and it was actually nineteen seventy nine. They were entering the eighties, and he got on and did this whole funny routine that Nubs and I have laughed about for years and years about how. Uh, the eighties was going to be the Al Franken decade where, where everybody needed to stop thinking about themselves and start thinking about me, Al Franken. So, so that's, that's what the, the whole T decade thing that we've, uh, that we've lifted is from. And by the way, we lift tons of stuff. The show is packed with references that, you know, some people might get, but many probably don't. That's a great example of one, but we're always throwing back and forth movie lines or references to comedy things or, even in some cases, inside jokes with each other, you know, that only we would know. And, and that yeah. there's two twins in an album is packed with those kind of, <laughs> I Yeah. I cited one of them out during the did Barry write it game. You said something from uh, Fernwood tonight, one of our favorite old shows. Yeah. Martin, good example. Yeah. Martin Mole and Fred Willard. And it was such a good call. I actually had to cite it out during the game show, but uh, yeah, some, some of the things are, are uh, sort of well-known and some of the things are a bit uh, obscure, but yeah, that's what that, that T decade routine that we uh, okay. A couple more here. What will music look like in 20 years? Well, I think if we stay on the trajectory we're on right now, it's just going to be so fragmented that there will be no central theme to music. It's just going to be so all over the place and everyone's just going to be able to personalize their experience so much that there won't be such a thing as like pop music. It'll just be your music. You know, everything's kind of make it yours. And the way that we're able to organize playlists and set up Spotify channels and like do all these things just to simply cater to our own taste. I think everything will become so individualized that there's no central scene. The other thing I think unfortunately is happening and will continue to happen is there's too much music in the world. It's, it's oversaturation and that's really having a negative impact on music in general. There's too many bands. There's too many artists. There's too many people who think they can sing there's too many shows about music. There's too many channels where you can get your stuff out there. And it's just become so easy that there's no exclusivity anymore to like being a band or being an artist. There's just too much. And I think that's going to only get worse as time goes on. So the value of music will continue to decline. And so, you know, that that's why being able to hang on to things from the past from just a much more pure time in music is really easy to do for me because. I just see it going in this direction of oversaturation and, and complete, complete fragmentation. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree. I mean, I think the thing that's really shifted music in the last five, seven years has been the DIY movement. I mean, anybody now has the ability through Pro Tools or through Logic or through any of these programs. And if you've got a MIDI device, I mean, you can make a lot of different sounds and you don't need live drums and you don't need live guitars and you know i mean you can you can do these things by pushing buttons and punching keyboards and um and in some cases you don't even need to have skill at at those things you don't need to have like synthesizer skill you just you know punch it all through and sequence it and all that and you know that's fine i mean it's getting more and more people to be 
creative and make music. And it's, it's really lowered the barrier of entry to make music. And, and that's always a good thing. But, you know, I don't, I think the quality has suffered. And I think that, uh, you know, when it comes to like the, the difference between live drums and, and electronic drums and live instrumentation and programmed instrumentation, I mean, you can really hear the difference, you know, and if you, you listen to what's sort of modern rock today, you know, or festival rock, as Nubs has always put it, um, it's, it's very sequenced, very programmed. It's not something that in many cases has a lot of feel to it. And it's stuff that I think is really difficult to pull off live, which is you, why you kind of see a lot of people just basically playing, not playing along with a track, but just playing a track and then sort of running around and singing to it and faking like you're playing a guitar or something. So, you know, I think DIY is great in that um, it really has gotten more people the ability to create an album or create a single or, you know, compose something or record something or layer something. You know, a lot of that's good. But it has, you know, caused, I think, a, a decrease in the ability to create raw music, which, you know, maybe there will be another minimalist grunge type era that comes back and sort of sweeps away because it does seem pretty cyclical. If you go back throughout the last, you know, uh, at least 60 years or so, you know, you do see that and maybe that'll happen. But, I, you know, I think this DIY thing has changed everything to where you can, you know, make an album in your basement. Uh, by yourself it won't be the most authentic raw thing in the world but you know you can do it and you can get it out there and if it's good enough somebody will play it you know alt nation will play it right so um is it possible to truly love somebody who doesn't fully appreciate 80s music i mean hey this question's right up my alley buddy okay <laughs> uh, no i i don't think so i mean the 80s was really i think a special unique decade in music where you had you know, the onset of new wave, the onset of pop, the hair metal. I mean, all these very charming things that, you know, at the time, some people may have thought was annoying. And through the grunge era, people maybe looked back and said that, you know, hair metal was stupid. Nirvana's awesome, you know, that sort of thing. But now there's enough of a nostalgia period, I think, where you can look back at that decade and have a lot of appreciation for. And, and I thought that when you picked Huey Lewis in the new sports, it was a great discussion not just about that band and that record but of the time period you know i brought up the weekend at bernie's thing and sort of the indulgent time period and the uh, how that reflected in a lot of ways uh, in some of the music being produced and music becoming now produced for mtv as much as it is for albums and all those kinds of things fascinating decade so yeah i mean i think there, there's obviously a lot of great music that's great to party to and prime to you know as you're getting ready to head out for the night or whatever it might be uh, but also just historically, I, I do think it's a, it's not a decade that should be overlooked. There were a lot of uh, very important things happening within music and within the kind of industry as a whole at that time uh, during that decade that, that shouldn't be overlooked and shouldn't be dismissed. Would you ever do a show? A couple more here. Would you ever do a show with an album that neither of you have heard? If there's an album you haven't both heard, of course, I think that'd be fun. Um, in fact, if Anybody, as we always say, if anybody wants to submit one that you maybe reckon that we haven't heard, uh, please do. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Now, I, that's going to be tough for us. And if you saw our collections, you'd kind of know why. <laughs> but and, and obviously, we do we do spawn a lot of genres and a lot of different styles. We don't sort of lock in on one or two things that we like. So, but I'm sure there are, there's one or two out there. Feel free to submit them. But yeah, I think we'd be happy to do that. Don't you think, Nub? Love the idea. Love the idea. But it'd be even better if we 
get a request from a listener. So yeah, send them in. That'd be cool. Uh, from a previous uh, episode, uh, Toph, on a scale from one to 10, how ridiculous is Nubs for having several copies, albeit different copies of the same album? I'm going to give him, I'm going to give him a nine on that one because, um, you know, because you know what it's having five copies of, uh, trick of the tail is better than having zero. So for that, he saves a point and I'm going to give him a nine on the ridiculousness scale out of 10. Good question. Here's the last one. (laughs) Y'all the final question. What is your favorite episode so far? Both one you led and one, the other led very good question. That's a really good question. So we'll start with the one that I led. I would say the Mike Oldfield tubular bells episode, mostly Mm. just because we pulled it off. You know, you think about, we were still in the infancy of our podcast during that episode. I forgot which exact episode it was, but I want to say it was in the top 10 or at least the top 15. Uh, That was uh, tubular bells was episode eight. Yeah. So, you know, here we are kind of eight episodes into this thing and Yours truly decides to do an album with two sides of one song, basically, on it. And I remember going into that one just thinking, well, this is going to be interesting. This will kind of show the range that we're able to have on the podcast. And it was cool because you came in just really prepared. I know it was an album that you were not familiar with at all, but you spent your time listening to it. I think the episode was informative. I think it was interesting. And I think it exposed something that's just so unique to music and, and, and pointed out some things about music history that are, are, are directly related to that album uh, that I think kind of go a long way. So that would be the one, uh, the one that I led that would stand out to me. And then in terms of the shows that you you've led, I mean, there's, there's been so many of them that have been really, really good, but I, I got to go back to the first show, you know, the Nirvana in utero and just the way that hmm. that show kind of came along as show number one, you had a really clear vision about why that was going to be show number one. And it really set the standard for how these discussions were going to go. And I think it was a really smart choice to just overall, if you're going to kick a podcast off and try and build an audience and find an album that's interesting to talk about and a band that's really compelling for people to hear about. I, I, I just thought that one was really cool. It stands out for sure. I go back and listen to it every once in a while, just to kind of hear where we've been, you know? Yeah, that's, those are both good. I, I, I would say, you know, for yours, I, I, when you brought kid a to the table, that was really interesting and, and, and smart because it was really the first time that, that either of us brought an album to the table that we kind of knew each other didn't like. And, but it's also very critically acclaimed and in some cases, historically acclaimed. So it was cool to kind of bring, I mean, we both put that in the for sale bin, which that's never happened. But I thought it was kind of a, it was a very cool choice to think from a different angle, not something that one of us liked or both of us liked or one that was like real influential on us. And, and I hope that, uh, that we could both kind of think more in that direction as we go forward. Cause sometimes those conversations are as interesting as us gushing about something we like while the other kind of formulates their opinion. So I, I really liked when you brought kid a the table and i you know i i i liked our barry manilow episode you know recently i, I thought that the uh the game uh did barry write it was was pretty fun and the top you're quite a, a game show host i guess yeah, <laughs> well, it was pretty funny and and the the top it was a great top five you know doing a manilow top five especially for us was good and, and a lot of people i think uh thought it was pretty cool that uh we would focus on an artist like barry uh and obviously we both had some you know kind of 
interesting stories as to how we became fanalos and all that kind of thing. So yeah, I thought that was a pretty good, uh, good one recent. And of course, as I noted on the episode, you know, Nubs was very, very skeptical of the album choice. He was giving me a hard time all day, you know, wondering if it was going to work. And much like he said on Tubular Bells, it was a little bit of a gamble of an album choice. There would have been an easier, safer album to do with Manilow, but, but I think uh, Plowing Through 2, uh, you know, top to bottom was, was kind of an interesting look at Barry. So, well, that's all we got. That's it. Well, we did it. I'd like to thank uh, Nubs and uh, <laughs> Scott and, uh, you know, all the people for real that uh, submitted questions. And like Nubs said from the onset, you know, thanks so much for, you know, listening and, and following. And, you know, please, uh, you know, leave us a review, you know, particularly on Apple Podcasts. That's really helpful for us. Nubs, anything to add before we move along? And obviously, we'll see everybody next week for episode 41. It's just nice to get to know you better, T. We don't know each other that well. So it's just, it's always good to, to just find out more about you, you know? I still don't know a damn thing about you. <laughs> Very mysterious. Yeah, you, know, you are. You sure are. Man, a, 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 mystery. Real, a real closed book, I would say. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, thanks, everybody. Hope you, hope you enjoyed the, uh, our second uh, listener Q&A here on episode 40. And we will definitely see you next week for episode 41 on Two Twins. And an album. Y'all take care. Two twins. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.